You're listening to TIP. Whereas this, you're buying a, an investment property. You buy this and then you live there for a period of time, usually a year, maybe a little bit longer, and then you can move out and rent it out to somebody else. And now you have a rental property that typically you'd have to put 20, 25, maybe even 30% down on. But now because you house hacked and lived there for one year, you can just put three and a half or 5% down and then move out when you're done. On today's episode, I bring my co-host Robert Leonard back onto the Millennial Investing Podcast to discuss his new book, The Everything Guide to House Hacking. Robert is the VP of Growth and Innovation at the Investors Podcast Network, as well as the co-host of the Millennial Investing Podcast and the host of the Real Estate 101 Podcast. He's also the founder and managing partner of the real estate investment firm, Piranha Capital. During this episode, Robert and I cover his experience writing his very first book, what a house hack is, why house hacking is such a powerful wealth building strategy, who house hacking might be good for and who it might not be good for, why building a team is critical when purchasing a house hack, how Robert thinks about finding quality tenants, the biggest risks in house hacking, and a whole lot more. Once I really understood why house hacking can provide such good returns for investors, I couldn't help but learn more about it. I got early access to Robert's new book, and it covers really everything you need to know to get started. Robert has done a number of house hacking deals himself, so he is a fantastic resource to learn from. And it was really a pleasure having him on the show to chat about house hacking. With that, I really hope you enjoy today's conversation with Robert Leonard. You're listening to Millennial Investing by the Investors Podcast Network, where your hosts, Robert Leonard and Clay Fink, interview successful entrepreneurs, business leaders, and investors to help educate and inspire the millennial generation. Welcome to the Millennial Investing Podcast. I'm your host, Clay Fink. And today, I bring back Robert Leonard, my co-host, to be a guest on the show. Robert, welcome back. Clay, thanks for having me. I'm excited to be back. Now, you and I have both interviewed a number of authors, which is one of my favorite parts of being a host of Millennial Investing. It's fun getting to know the author while you're reading the book before or after, because it just kind of feels like a more personal experience. I really like that aspect of being a host. So super excited to have the opportunity to chat about your book today, The Everything Guide to House Hacking. Before we talk about the details of the book, I'd like to ask you just about your general experience writing a book as a first-time author. Was it harder than you expected? Or talk about that experience for us. It's kind of funny that you said that you like talking to authors and now you're talking to me because I still don't really fully see myself as an author. But to your question about kind of how it came about, it was a little bit interesting. Simon & Schuster has a series that's called the Everything Series. And they publish a bunch of different books about various topics. One, they have one about the everything guide to sports gambling, the one the everything guide to stock investing. Like They have all kinds of ones. And basically, they generate it based on an idea that they want to write a book on, and then they go find the author. So they decided that they wanted to write a book on house hacking. And because of me hosting a relatively popular podcast, they found my name and they were like, Hey, they reached out to me. They're like, Hey, from Simon & Schuster, we're, like, we're offering you a book deal. Do you want to write this book? You know, we got into some of the details. And so was it harder than I thought? Not really, but we had a little bit of an interesting kind of situation because most authors have an idea for a book or they even write the book already. And then they go and pitch that to a publisher and then go through it that way. Or they at least pitch the idea to the publisher, get the book deal, and then they write it. And so usually they have a year, two years. A lot of the authors I've talked to, they said they took five years to write their books even. For me, what was different was they came to me and said, Hey, we're talking about this end of August, early September. You need to have your full first draft to me by December. So, like, I had like three to four months to write this. That in and of itself was very difficult. It was a very quick process. And the reason that it had to be that way was because we had these deadlines that we had to hit in order for publishing to happen. And now it's going to be published in September of 2022. And I'm like, Why do I need this like nine months in advance? But it's because then there was like four or five rounds of editors that went through it. Then we had, we did some videography stuff to publish or promote the book. Then we had a bunch of like cover art done. Then they had to actually put all the programming like to make it a book itself. So, like, there's a lot that goes into it between, and then there's supply chain issues so to actually get the physical books themselves. So, it just a, it is a long process. So, we had to kind of shorten my writing period. So, that was definitely tough. The other really difficult piece was that 
I wasn't allowed to use the word I, so I couldn't say I at all in the book. So that was very difficult. And also it was very strict on the length of things. So chapters had to be an exact like word count. And then the total book had to be between 72,000 and 77,000 words. And so you're like, oh, 5,000 word difference. Like that's a lot. But when you sit down and you think about writing that many words and having to finish in such a tight window, it was difficult. And also I couldn't write about any stories. So just the way that they designed this style of book, not allowed to tell any stories, which honestly I think is a little bit of a bummer for the quality of the book, but it also made the writing difficult because at times I didn't necessarily have enough to say to fill the word count. And if I could have just imported a story that I've experienced, because I've house hacked a bunch of times and I've helped other people house hack and I've talked to other house hackers. So like if I could have included some stories, that would have been really helpful to the book and also extend the length of my writing and would have made the writing a lot easier. It was about what I expected. It was difficult, especially given the timeline. But like you said, we've gotten to talk to some really good authors. So I had some really good strategies to how to go into this. And I really just broke it down into digestible pieces. I knew that I had to write 600 words every single day without skipping a single day from the day I started until mid-December. And then I would hit my 77,000 words or whatever the exact breakdown was. But I knew I had to sit down and write that exact number of words every single day or I was going to fall behind. And then in a future day, I'd have to write more. It was difficult, but thankfully, Clay, as you know, I'm relatively efficient and I have pretty good time management skills. So I was able to get it done. You mentioned all these strict rules around writing the book. And it just reminds me of university, how annoying some of that was. And I'm honestly really surprised you wrote it in three or four months, given how long it is and how detailed it is. I was just like, wow, you, you just like knocked this thing out of the ballpark, in my opinion. It's around 250 pages. I just brought it up. And it kind of reminds me of uh, when I spoke with William Green, you and I were in Omaha for the Berkshire meeting. And he mentioned to me, just like casually mentioned to me, he wrote his book in like five years. And I'm like, you know, I was so surprised and just had like a whole new level of respect for his book. And I know he puts so much quality into everything he does with the podcast. So really interesting. Yeah, it's definitely hard. And you know, I've heard kind of both sides of it. I've talked to some people such as William and some others who said that I actually have two friends who are also in the podcasting space and they also write books and they were assigned a book from their publisher and but they had no end date. And this was they were assigned the book a year ago. They've made no progress. They don't lack motivation. They're not like they are very motivated, very successful people. It's just they don't have a deadline. So it doesn't force them to do the writing. And so for me, yeah, it was really tough to have this short window. But in a different perspective, I'm like very happy that I had that because it forced me to sit down and make sure I got it done every single day. Like I mentioned in the intro, your book is called The Everything Guide to House Hacking. So for those who maybe haven't listened to too much of your show or haven't heard too much about your background in real estate, walk us through what exactly a house hack is. Yeah, we can get into... You can make house hacking really difficult or really complex, but really in its simplest form, all house hacking is, is purchasing a property that has extra space that you're not utilizing and then renting out that extra space to reduce your expenses. So if you're... Let's just say your total mortgage is $1,000. You have some extra space, whether it's a bedroom, a unit, a backyard, a parking space, whatever it is, there's a bunch of different ways you can do it. Whatever you do to reduce that $1,000, maybe you get $500 a month for something and now you only have to pay $500. That's house hacking. It's doing something where you rent out additional space in your residence to reduce your living expenses. You know, it's funny you mentioned that Simon and Schuster reached out to you asking you if you wanted to write a house hacking book. What makes you qualified to write this book? What's your experience like with house hacking and the deals you've done? They didn't know this, I don't think, in terms of like what I've done for house hacking. Maybe they had heard some episodes about it, but I think they just knew that I had the pretty popular real estate podcast. And I, I post on social media. She's mentioned she saw me on social media as well. Um, she actually said she saw me on Instagram posting about real estate stuff. So that was helpful. But in terms of like my knowledge and qualifications for house hacking, I'm a three-time house hacker myself. I have done it three separate times and I've done three different strategies each time. So I kind of have a little bit of experience with pretty much all the different approaches to real estate that you could have. So my first one was actually, what's really interesting is that I got into real estate because of an accidental house hacking. I'll, I'll briefly tell that story, but the approach was a single family rent by the room strategy. 
I going into college, my dad told me that when I graduated college, I was earning a salary, I would have to pay him rent. And I thought this was fair, but I didn't really want to do it. And so I was 18 going into college. I knew I had four years to figure something out. And so I saved as much money as I could, learned everything I could. I was actually like all through college, worked almost full time, became a loan officer, started to do underwriting for loans myself. So I learned everything I needed to do to qualify for these types of loans and mortgages. Not because I was I had no intentions of being a real estate investor. I just wanted to buy a house when I graduated college. So I didn't have to pay my dad rent. I told him, I said, and I told all my friends and family, I said, before I graduate college or right after I graduate college, I'm going to buy a house that I don't have to pay you rent. And so everybody laughed, thought I was crazy. Nobody in my family had ever purchased a house until my dad did when he was in his 40s. So it was, it was just a different kind of experience. Nobody, nobody thought that I was going to do this. Sure enough, um, like I said, I learned everything I needed to do, put myself in a really good position. And I bought a condo a small, pretty nice condo uh, my senior year of college. And I moved there and I didn't plan on house hacking. I didn't even know that was a thing. I just, again, wanted to live there so I didn't pay rent. And so moved in and it was two bedrooms. I was a single guy by myself. And so I moved in and I didn't even like open the second bedroom door for like a couple months. It was like two or three months where I don't think I even opened the door to go in there. So one day it just kind of hit me. I was like, man, I should probably do something with that room. It's just kind of sitting there. Maybe I'll turn it into an office, but I didn't really need it as an office because I had another room that was an office already. It's like, yeah, maybe I'll rent it out. Like, we'll just see what happens. And so ended up finding a guy that I knew at the gym who was looking for a room to rent and he ended up renting the room. And so I had a roommate and my total cost for the condo with mortgage, insurance, taxes, HOA, everything was about 1100 and he paid me about $700 or $750 a month. So I was living for like $350, and a month. And it was awesome. He worked nights. I worked during the day. And so he's home when I was at work and I was home when he was at work. And so we pretty much never saw each other. And I got to live for really, really cheap. And it was great. And I realized that I'm not that smart. So there's no way that I just like invented this strategy. I just did a little bit of searching, stumbled upon house hacking. I found that this was a strategy coined by a guy named Brandon Turner. And that opened me to the world of bigger pockets and real estate investing. And I realized that there were thousands and thousands of other people that were just like me that were real estate investors and taught me that I could do it too. And from there, it's kind of history. It's funny you mentioned the condo experience you had. When I was in Omaha, I actually lived in a condo, got a two bed that I owned. and. I just had one of my good buddies live with me and I never told anyone I was house hacking. When I think of house hacking, I always think of some sort of like a multifamily duplex, triplex. That's kind of the most common method just because real estate investors are kind of looking for those returns and looking for something that'll be able to rent out once they move out of the place that they are living in. Now, someone might be listening to this. They hear, okay, house hacking is a form of real estate investing and a lot of people just don't want to be real estate investors. But I think once you realize the power of house hacking in terms of like the ROI and what you get for your money relative to what else you can do with that money, we talk a lot at TIP about opportunity costs. You know, you can spend an hour and a day only doing one particular thing. You can't do multiple things at once. It's the same thing with money. You can only put a certain dollar amount towards one type of investment called stocks or real estate. Talk to us about why house hacking is such a powerful wealth building strategy. There are so many different reasons, but we'll start with the very first one, which is down payment. You can purchase a property because it's your primary residence. You are able to purchase a property with, depending on what type of property, what type of loan, but you can get anywhere from three and a half to 5% down on a property. And so, yeah, you can do that on a single family too, but that's not really an investment. That's more of buying a liability. Whereas this, you're buying a, an investment property. You buy this and then you live there for a period of time, usually a year, maybe a little bit longer, and then you can move out and rent it out to somebody else. And now you have a rental property that typically you'd have to put 20, 25, maybe even 30% down on. But now because you house hacked and lived there for one year, you can just put three and a half or 5% down and then move out when you're done. And now you have a rental property for very low money down. So that's the first thing. The second thing is that it reduces your living expenses. I think that is massive. So for me, in just in that example, right, that I just gave about the condo, 
my living expenses went from 1100 to 350 or $400 a month. Like, can you imagine how your life would be different or how you could do different things if you freed up an extra 700 or $750 a month? Like now you can save that so that you can either buy another house hack in a year or you can buy a rental property or you can even spend some of it on yourself and just enjoy life or whatever really you want to do with the money. Now you're just not, you're not necessarily living paycheck to paycheck anymore. What I really like about this too is that it allows you, I talk about this, this kind of theory where it allows you to go on offense. Let's say that you take a job that you're working in a job that says $50,000, $60,000 a year, $70,000 a year is your salary. And you're spending every penny you have because you're what I call, and a lot of people will call house poor, where you have a really nice house, you love your house, but you can't really do much else because your mortgage payment, your cost of living of just your housing takes up almost your whole paycheck. And so you're stuck. There's nothing really else you can do. Whereas you can't go on offense. You're always on defense. Whereas you could go on offense if you had lower housing expenses. So let's say you cut that way down because you house hack. And now you take a job that maybe pays $40,000 a year. Maybe you're in the short term, you're paying, you're getting paid less. Before you could never even operate, you couldn't even like consider that. It couldn't even be an opportunity for you because you were already living paycheck to paycheck versus now you could take that reduction to a little bit lower salary for A, a job you love. And so you're not miserable at work anymore, or B, a job with a much higher upside. Maybe you join a startup and yeah, you're getting paid a little bit less, but in two, three years, you get your RSUs are worth a million dollars. Like that's not an unrealistic situation or you know, whatever the case is, you go to a little bit smaller company or whatever the situation is, you take a little bit more of a gamble with your career. And in one, two, three years, you could get a promotion. Now you're making 100, 120, 130,000, all because you were able to take kind of one step back and really look at something for the opportunity that it provides rather than just being stuck because of your paycheck. So that's the another big piece of reducing your expenses. And the, the third thing with reducing your expenses is that for me personally, I like to go out and do things. I like to go out and experience things. I like to go out and travel and race dirt bikes and play sports and just do all kinds, like live life. And for me, a component of that, yeah, is being able to invite people over to a house you would love and things like that. But for me, I don't want to be constrained to what I can do for fun and hobbies and enjoyment because of my house. Sure, I need a safe, clean, good location, place to live. But it doesn't have to be a palace. And and for me, that's because I want to go do other stuff. That's a, a really big component is it gives you a lot of freedom and flexibility to do things that you really want to do. Then there's also the benefit of of tax benefits. So now, you know, I'm not a tax professional, so don't don't run and do your tax returns based on this. But like if you hire a landscaping company, let's say you own a duplex and you live in one unit, rent out the other. If you hire a landscaping company to mow the lawn, you can write off roughly 50% of your expenses for doing that because you live in half and half is a rental property. So now half of that's a business expense. Same with snow removal and same with pretty much all of these kinds of things. You also have depreciation as well. So you have these tax benefits because your property is half investment, half primary residence that you don't have with a single family house. So that's really important as well. And then the last thing is just that it's such an easy way to learn how to become a real estate investor. Uh, I call it landlording light or landlording with training wheels. And like we said with the down payment is it, it allows you to get a rental property pretty easily. And, and now you can leave in a year and a half and turn it into a rental. There's a lot, a lot of benefits there. And you can acquire a pretty, because of leverage, this is, is pretty applicable across many real estate strategies, but you can buy a pretty expensive asset for relatively low money down. Like my current house hack, I bought a $350,000 duplex and I only put $12,000 into this property to purchase it. And a year later, it was worth $450,000. And I put $12,000 into it. Like, of course, it's been an interesting market, you know, really interesting times, but you're not going to really get those types of returns in, in other places. And they're not guaranteed, of course. Like, that's not going to always be the case. But regardless, you're building equity every month in that property and somebody else is paying for it, not yourself a lot of benefits to house hacking. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Hey guys, about a year and a half ago, my wife and I got married and one of the most stressful parts of our relationship has been trying to join our finances together. We all know that money issues are a leading cause of divorce, but Monarch, the top rated personal finance app has built in collaboration features so that you can invite your partner at no extra cost. 
Together, you can see all your finances, collaborate on your budget, and get insights on your cash flow and recurring transactions. It's the easiest way to manage your household finances. Unlike other personal finance apps that we tried, Monarch's simple, intuitive design makes it so easy to set up, customize, and use. Monarch is obsessed with constantly improving the product, and they release updates every two weeks and allow customers to submit suggestions, vote on requested features, and view the product roadmap. Most importantly, they never sell your data to third parties or show you ads. After trying out Monarch for myself, my wife and I understand why it's a top-rated personal finance app. And right now, listeners on this show will get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com mi. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y dot com slash M-I for your extended 30-day free trial. Go to monarchmoney.com slash M-I for an extended 30-day free trial. Hey guys, have you ever wondered if there's an AI tool like ChatGPT specifically built for the stock market? A tool that not only does the research and analysis for you, but also allows for dynamic discussions? Well, wonder no more. Meet Meka, your AI-powered stock research assistant, now enhanced with real-time stock data. Let Meka do the heavy lifting for you to significantly reduce your research time. And the best part, Meka is 100% free. Ask Meka questions like, explore the financial health of Apple through a summary of its balance sheet. Compare the financial statements of Apple and Tesla. What is the analyst price target for Microsoft? What is the social sentiment analysis of Amazon and millions of other queries right at your fingertips? Visit Meka.com. That's M-E-Y-K-A.com. Hey guys, when it comes to financial advice, you've got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When I'm looking to upgrade my wallet, I turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before NerdWallet, I'd pay for vacations with whatever credit card was in my wallet. But I was missing out on miles I didn't even know I was leaving on the table. Now I've got a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? A free flight to a bucket list destination? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and much more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet, finance smarter. Check out nerdwallet.com and start making smarter financial decisions. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. All right, back to the show. I love the playing offense side that you mentioned there. You know, you see a lot of people out of college, they'll go out and buy the new car, they'll go out and buy the, you know, get married and get the nice house. And they really just strap themselves down to not put themselves in a position to play offense. And yeah, there's the one hand of lowering your expenses through a house hack, but also it reminds me of people I know that have purchased a house hack. For example, I have a buddy, he bought one in 2017, 2018, put around $10,000 down. And today it's cash flowing over $10,000 per year after he's already moved out of it. He has both sides of the duplex rented out. And now he's getting cash flow $10,000 per year. Like, What stock out there is going to give you a 100% annualized return? And that's not even considering the other things you mentioned, the tax benefits. His duplex since 2017 to 2018 has appreciated significantly. And you know that's not guaranteed by any means, but it's playing offense. It's putting yourself in a position to have that upside. Mine is the exact same situation. So like I said, I put $12,000 down. When I leave, I'll probably cash flow about $1,000 a month, I think, maybe a little bit more depending on when I leave. So my payback period is one year as a rental. $1,000 a month times 12 is my $12,000 back. And that's cash flow. That's not like that's real cash flow. I took into consideration maintenance, repairs, capex, vacancy, all of that. This is just net, true net, net cash flow. And a payback period of one year is awesome. In your book, I also liked how you weren't overselling this strategy and you were being very realistic when explaining everything. You talked about how house hacking might not be for everyone. Some people are probably in a lot better situation to execute a strategy like this than others who just might be in a completely different part of their life. Who do you believe house hacking is good for and who might it not be good for? I definitely think there are people who it might not be the perfect fit for, but I do think anybody can do it. So there's kind of a distinction there. 
But I think the people who it's not good for is if you just can't fathom living anywhere near somebody else, like if you just have to absolutely be on your own lot, then this probably just isn't for you. Now, it's interesting to me because people will say, oh, well, I have a family. And it's like, well, you can buy like really nice house hacks. Like house hack, I think kind of gets a bad reputation in a sense, or like when you hear house hack for the first time, you kind of think of just like a fourplex or a threeplex, a triplex in like a really bad area in the city that's like run down. But like, I know people who have multi-million dollar house hacks in California that are beautiful and they house hack it by having a small ADU in the back and they just rent it out to like a little a family or a family member or you know they just reduce their expenses a little bit by just renting out an ADU so it doesn't have to be like this rundown property but i digress there if somebody doesn't just can't fathom living on the same lot or near somebody else then it's probably not for you if you have absolutely no interest in being a landlord it's probably not the best for you. I think there are ways you could hire property managers, things like that to not necessarily be a landlord. But if you don't necessarily like want to be hands-on, then it's probably not the best strategy for you either. For those who might not be familiar, what is an ADU? ADU stands for Accessory Dwelling Unit. It doesn't have to be, but it's typically a detached unit from the property. It can be attached, but typically it's just like a, a small spare unit basically that's its own like living space. Think of like a studio apartment, essentially, sometimes they're one bedroom that's kind of like off on the side of the the lot. Or so again, sometimes it's attached, but it's like an in-law suite is like another way to kind of explain that. We talked about some of your previous real estate deals. And as I've gotten to know you, I know that you are interested in potentially getting another house hack in the future. Given your experience and what you know about real estate investing, I'm curious, what are some of the specific things you're going to be looking for and why? With my next house hack, I'm running into an interesting situation that from a loan perspective, that's making it a little bit difficult. But for me, what I'm looking for, and I think this is a really good example for people that say they don't want a house hack because I don't necessarily need to house hack, but I still want to. And I'm doing it in a way that fits my lifestyle. Like I've done it three times now. I own rental properties. I financially don't need to do it, but I still want to because it does help. It definitely reduces expenses and you can do it in a way that fits what you want. Like this one, my first one and my second one were not like the most optimal living situations that I could ever have. My third one that I'm in now, it got a little bit better. Now, my fourth one, instead of living in a fourplex in maybe not the best location, just so I can get like a really good rental property or reduce my expenses as much as possible, maybe I'm not going to go that route. Maybe I don't need to now because it's my third one. I'm doing a little bit better financially. As you kind of progress through doing multiple house hacks, you can change your criteria. So for me, now what I'm looking for, I want a place with land. I want to kind of get out of the city. I want at least two, three acres, ideally like five acres would be nice. Now, this is hard to find where I live. There's not typically multifamily properties on that much land. Now, I don't want to do a single family rent by the room strategy. That's not what I want to do right now. I've done that and it works, but it's just not what I want to do. So again, it's not so much that you can't do house hacking if you have certain criteria. You just have to find the strategy that works for you. And so for me, I want a multifamily, ideally duplex, that is on two, three, four, five acres, not in the city, that is within 20 to 30 minutes of some locations that I need to get to frequently, like stores, friends, family, things like that. That's my criteria right now. Whereas before, I would have been a little bit more strict and cared more about the financial component. I'm also interested in learning more about maybe some of the biggest misconceptions around house hacking. What do you think keeps people from making that step and doing a house hack? I think the biggest thing is they just can't ever imagine living with somebody. And I think that that's just like the biggest misconception is you tell somebody that that they need to house hack and they're just like, they automatically assume that it's going to be like college, like they're living in a dorm, that they're sharing this small one bedroom house with five other people and it's just a crappy living situation and it's just not fun. And so I think that that's the biggest misconception or, or concern that people have. The second, I think, is how difficult it is to be a landlord. If you do it right, it's not that difficult. I, I don't, I'm not going to tell you and preach that it's like 
totally passive because it's not, but it is relatively passive. And if you, like I said, if you do it right, it can be pretty easy to do. I think people overestimate the difficulty as well. One part I really loved about your book was how you outlined the importance of building a team. And that's sort of an interesting way to put it. When you think of building a team, you might think of building a company and having all these people on your team that are helping you deliver a product or service. And when you put it in the way that you did of building your team, and it can almost feel intimidating where this person that's never built a business, they've never ran their own business, and they need to find all these people, find the right ones. And one person might be a really key to the success or failure of your house hack. So why do you believe a team is necessary? And who are some of the key members that should be on that team? So when I wrote the book, it is important to build a team and have a team, but I wanted to kind of explain that it doesn't have to be as scary or complex as people think. Because I could have just said, you need to build a team and left it at that. But I, I went into detail on how building a team doesn't mean you're, you're not hiring people full-time. You don't have to start an LLC, start an, you know, a legal entity, hire these people full-time, pay them salary, benefits, pay their taxes, do payroll, all that kind of stuff. Like You're not hiring a full-time employee. What it means to build a team really is another way to say it is you're just building relationships with a group of people that you can consistently rely on for your rental property. I call that building a team. You're adding them to your team because you have already vetted them and know that they're going to be in your corner. They can help you out in a situation. And so they're kind of like in your group, they're on your team. I personally think the best way to do it is to build those relationships before you need them. If you have a tenant who sprung a massive leak for their some sort of water plumbing problem in their in their unit or even yourself in your unit, it's a little bit different. You're kind of under the gun, you got to find somebody quickly and you're just you're not going to make the best decision when you're finding these people to come work with you and you're just going to rush it cuz you you're going to accept somebody lower quality than you otherwise would because you just need the problem fixed. Whereas if you know there's a couple different types of people that you're probably going to need at some point in your real estate career, you're probably going to need a plumber at some point, probably going to need HVAC. If your plumber can't do it, you're going to do your heating and air conditioning at probably at some point. Uh, you're probably going to need maybe a handyman and then you might need an electrician. From a construction perspective, those are going to be like some of the big four people that you might need to fix problems. If you know that those are probably going to be an issue at some point, why not get in front of that? Find one or two of these companies or people in each group, start to build a relationship with them, start to vet them, make sure they're high quality, make sure they can do what you need, explain to them what you're doing. And then when the time comes, you can actually have them come out and do what you need. And that's just from a construction perspective. Then on the other end, when you're actually buying or managing the property, you have your real estate agent, which is arguably the most important person on your team. You can have a lender as well. A lender can be important. And then an attorney on occasion, you can even get a virtual assistant. Those are more on the, the business side. And then even maybe a CPA or a tax professional uh, can help you as well. So again, it's, it's really just building a relationship, building a business and, and working relationship with these people so that when you need them, you don't have to just kind of pick anybody because you're in a rush at that time. And knowing and having that relationship going in, you can have a lot more trust in what they say, their opinions that they give you. You feel a lot more confident about the decisions that you're making. You mentioned LLCs. Did you ever use an LLC when you purchased your house hacks? And maybe can paint some color on why. No. So you actually can't use an LLC when you purchase a house hack. That's the first thing. Generally speaking, when it comes to real estate outside of just house hacking and to other real estate strategies... I have a little bit of a funny story about LLCs because before I really knew anything, and I still have a lot to learn, but when I really knew nothing, I thought that I would never buy a piece of real estate without an LLC. I always said, I have to have an LLC to buy real estate. So when I went to go buy my first rental property, I opened an LLC. I was getting excited. I was like, all right, I'm ready to go. I'm ready to buy this property. Go to buy a property. Lender would not land on an LLC. Like, okay, well, this is just one lender. Maybe you know, I'll find somebody else. No problem. I called almost 100 lenders. Not a single one would lend to an LLC on the type of asset that I was buying, which was just a single family house. It was a rental property. Turns out residential lenders will not lend to LLCs. The reason for that is because they have to be able to sell their loans to Fannie or Freddie. And in order to do that, it can't be to an entity. It has to be to an individual. 
said, okay, well, I got to figure something else out. So I ended up doing that in my personal name. And then you can do an LLC for commercial if you use commercial lending. Totally different situation. But when it all comes down to it, uh, house hacking, you cannot use an LLC for your house hack. That makes sense. Now, I'd like to talk a little bit about tenants and finding a deal. In regards to the tenant side, say someone goes out and purchases a duplex, they're going to live in one side because many times with something like an FHA loan, it requires you to live in one of the units. And then you'd go ahead and rent out the other side of the duplex. And a common uh, perception I think people have when it comes to renters is that they're not going to treat something as well if they're renting it versus if they owned it. How do you go about finding quality tenants that you're more comfortable with them living in your space and that they're going to take good care of your asset? Yeah, there is some truth to that. Regardless, it's not just houses, whatever it is, you let your brother borrow something, you let your dad borrow something, you let anybody borrow something, your friend, they just, people just don't take care of things like you do when you own it. It's just the way it is. You hire a property manager to manage your property. They don't manage it as well as you will because it's yours. You care about it more than anybody else. There is definitely some truth to that. Now, when it comes down to the tenants, the very first thing is the type of asset that you're buying. It's a pretty logical thing. I think a lot of times if people just slow down, spend some time. I know Buffett Buffett talks about this a lot. He spends more time. He should people should spend more time thinking. He spends a lot of time thinking. If you just slow down, did a little bit of critical thinking and thought about some of these things, it would make perfect sense to most people. And so if you buy a fourplex that is more designed like an apartment and it's in the middle of a city, maybe not the best area, what kind of tenant do you think you're going to get? You're probably not going to get the highest quality tenant. You're probably going to have some issues there. They're not necessarily going to be bad tenants, but they're probably not going to take the best care of the property. Versus you buy a beautiful duplex in a great part of town with great school districts, maybe a little bit of land, maybe, you know, it doesn't have to be acres and acres, but half an acre, a quarter of an acre, a nice little yard fenced in, you know, a nice area with good neighbors, things like that. What kind of tenant quality do you think you're going to get there? much different than than the more apartment style fourplex. And then even within a duplex, if you get a up down versus a left right townhouse style, you're going to get different style tenants because up down is more like an apartment, left right and townhouse style is more like a single family house. The very first step is deciding what type of tenant do you want? And and you can't just say you want the best tenants because sometimes you need to make a sacrifice a little bit because, you know, in reality that fourplex is probably going to make a little bit more money than the duplex. It's just kind of the way that the math works, the way that the numbers work on a, on a house hack. You're going to sacrifice a little bit of profitability. And I talk about this in the book. I have a nice explanation of it on my website that explains there's this comfort versus profitability diagram. The more comfort you give up, the more profitability you get. The less comfort you give up, the less profitability you get with a house hack. And so that's the very first step is pick the right property that's aligned with the quality of tenant that you want and also with your goals, your financial goals. The second thing is you have to have the right screening criteria when you're searching for these tenants. You need not only from a legal perspective, you have to have a definition for what kind of tenant you're you're going to accept, but more than that is you need to set it strict enough that you're okay with that quality of tenant. Like the law says you should have a list of qualities that you're looking for in terms of like credit score, background checks, jobs, income, things like that. But there's a difference between setting your credit score minimum at 600 versus 500 or 700. Those are going to lead to different tenants. Or if you require three times the gross monthly rent as your income, that's going to be different than if you require one times gross monthly rent. That's going to be a different tenant profile. If you require a clean background check with no criminal history, that's going to lead to a different tenant profile than if you allow certain crime or you know delinquencies or bankruptcies, things like that. It's really defining your criteria to fit the type of tenant that you want. I really like that perspective, actually. And it, you know, it kind of reminds me of my good buddy. He had the duplex essentially in the middle of Omaha. And when you think about the location and kind of the building, it was a pretty old building, but the location, it was like five minutes away from a medical school. So I'm pretty sure all of his tenants are just like graduate students that honestly take really good care of it. They want a place that is very affordable. It's a three bed. They all live together. 
And since they're so busy with medical school, they really don't have the time to really tear the place up. I think the tenant side is really an area where you can get creative and really think hard. Like you say, what type of tenants is this going to attract? Like I said, if you really think about it, think about like where would you want to live at different stages in your life? When you know maybe you're coming out of college, you don't have a lot of money, you might not be the best tenant either. Where would you be willing to live? What, what could you afford? That's going to probably be the similar tenant profile that you would get in that property. And then maybe if you're a little bit older, think about that. You know, you're 25, 30 now. Like, what can you afford then? And just think about different locations, type of property, design, style. I mean, there's so many different things that can kind of change what type of tenant you're going to get in that that unit or even bedrooms. Now, generally, when people want to go out and buy a house hack, they aren't searching city by city. They're looking in the city they're currently in, assuming they're not moving for a job or anything else. How can people know if the market that they live in or the market they're analyzing even is a good or a bad market? So this is interesting because you either make the decision to live there or not, kind of in a sense, like house hacking, like you're you're either going to live in the town or you're not. So you can look up the data and decide if it's a good city, if it's like if it has the demographic data points that you want for a city that you're going to invest in. Um, but if it doesn't, if you've already decided that it's the city you want to live in, then it doesn't really much matter if it's a single family or a house hack. Like the city is still the city. So it kind of just is. And now, what I personally recommend is you probably are not forced to say in the city that you're in. Like the reality is, talk about this in the book is if you really want to make something happen, you can probably move 15, 20, 30 minutes away around the city that you live in. And still make it happen. Um, maybe that's just because there's no deals in the city that you live in for the type of deal that you want, or maybe it's because there's a city 15, 20 minutes away that has a lot better demographic data that makes it for a much better investment. So maybe you go there for that reason. You can determine what the type of city is that you live in, but if you've already decided for to stay there, then it, it doesn't really much matter. But if you're looking for the best, then just set how far you're willing to move and. For me, it's usually like 20 to 30 minutes from kind of this central point I'd be willing to go around. And just where I live, there's some pretty small towns. And so there's maybe a dozen towns or so within 20, 30, 40 minutes of each other. Those are all fine to me. And I'd pretty much move to any of them. So if that's the case, I can look for deals in in any of them. And that's kind of how I recommend people go about it. Now, if you live in a big city, Kind of a different story. In that case, you want to find the best neighborhoods. So, like, you know, your friend in Omaha. Omaha is not a massive city, but it's a good sized city. It's much bigger than where I live. And so maybe you don't necessarily want to go 20, 30 minutes outside of Omaha, but Omaha is a city itself. You could just find the best neighborhoods. You maybe you need to go to the other side of Omaha. Maybe you just need to kind of move around. And that's kind of how it works with with any major city, is just find the best neighborhoods. You're not really looking at it on a city by city basis. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Do you guys ever feel overwhelmed with all that's going on in the markets and feel like you just can't keep up with the day-to-day news headlines? Today's show sponsor, Yahoo Finance, is my go-to solution to keeping up with today's top news and stay informed with what is happening globally. With Yahoo Finance, I'm able to see the biggest trends and biggest movers in the stock market, what is happening with interest rates, major geopolitical events, and much more. If it wasn't for Yahoo Finance, I would have no idea that Tesla is laying off 10% of their staff or why iPhone shipments are down 9% year over year. Yahoo Finance also has a number of other cool features, including a tool that lets you link in all of your investment accounts, analyst ratings and independent research, as well as the ability to create customized charts. Yahoo Finance is one of my favorite tools I use in my investing toolkit, and it's what I use each morning to kick off my day and stay in the loop with what's happening in the markets. Join more than 90 million monthly users today and get comprehensive financial news and analysis at yahoofinance.com. The number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. Hey guys, when it comes to financial advice, you've got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When I'm looking to upgrade my wallet, I turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before NerdWallet, I'd pay for vacations with whatever credit card was in my wallet, but I was missing out on miles I didn't even know I was leaving on the table. Now I've got a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? 
lounge access, a free flight to a bucket list destination, wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and much more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet, finance smarter. Check out nerdwallet.com and start making smarter financial decisions. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Everything seems to be more expensive these days. I've noticed this at my own businesses that I've run. You'd be wise to find proven ways to cut costs and boost performance at the same time. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash mi. netsuite.com slash mi. That's netsuite.com slash mi. All right, back to the show. One question I'm super interested in is how you go about finding your deals. You know, the obvious way to find a deal is just look on the MLS. Anyone can get online, get on Zillow and see what's for sale in the real estate market. And I think that can almost be a little intimidating for people. They either see something where the numbers work and they're just like, oh, it it must be too good to be true if no one's picking up the deal because of all these real estate investors that are out there constantly looking for stuff. And then a lot of the stuff on the MLS, I think might not have the best numbers. So that might kind of hold someone back from going into a deal. Talk about maybe how you go about finding a deal. Do you use the MLS or what approach do you use or recommend? So let's break down both of the different ways. You either have on-market, you have off-market. So what you're talking about with the MLS is on-market deals. You're looking at Zillow, Realtor.com, Trulia, whatever there might be. Those are all pulling... There's this multiple listing service, which is what MLS stands for. It's basically your main database for any rental property, uh, not rental properties, any properties, any residential properties that are for sale. There are some commercial as well, but just generally speaking, if you're looking for a residential property, it's on the MLS. So what Zillow, Trulia, Realtor.com, all they do is they pay the MLS that the company or organization that maintains the MLS, they pay them to get access to all their data. And then they just basically make an interface that makes it look better. That's all they do. Makes it easier for users to search and see what's for sale. Back in the day, only agents, this is really why like agents were really helpful back then was because there were no platforms like Zillow, Realtor.com, etc. Only agents could access the MLS. So if you wanted to know what was for sale, if you didn't see a for sale sign, you'd have to talk to an agent. It would give you a pamphlet of everything that's on the MLS and then you could see what was there. But now companies like Zillow just access the MLS, give you that user interface that pretty much anybody can access. I think the MLS is a great strategy. I bought every real estate deal that I've ever purchased except for one off of the MLS. And to your point that you could see something and if the numbers are too good to be true, it's a tough situation because the numbers could be too good to be true. If they're too good to be like really, really too good to be true, then they probably are. Like you're either buying in a really bad location, which typically bad locations pencil out to be some of the best deals. But what happens is your projections or your pro forma never actually materializes in reality. It's always worse than you actually expect it to be. So then the actual return numbers end up being lower than you could have gotten somewhere else. Now, if it's too good to be true, you need to understand if are you projecting too high of rent numbers? Like, Are you overestimating what you'll be able to get for rent for the unit or the bedroom or whatever the case is? That would lead to the deal seeming too good to be true. Are you underestimating some of your expenses? You not fully understand what your mortgage is going to be, PMI, your private mortgage insurance, or any other type of expense you might have, water, utilities, something that you might be missing. Is there something there? And if you're not, then there are times where it's just not too good to be true. It's just you found a good deal. And that happens. And the reason that happens is because 
everybody has a different situation. Like not everybody is coming into this to house hack and they might have a different strategy. Maybe it doesn't make sense as a rental property. Like right now, it maybe it doesn't make sense. So a traditional investment real estate investor doesn't want to buy it because it doesn't want to be a traditional rental. And it's not a single family home. So people aren't going to like just normal homeowners aren't going to buy it. So it kind of leaves this sweet spot for you as a house hacker to buy it. And now you just are up against other house hackers. And that just really comes down to your criteria. Are you, you have to live for free or are you willing to pay $500 a month? Or do you want to live for $1,000 a month? Like it's up to you to decide what your criteria is. And maybe somebody is not willing to pay as much per month as, as you are. It's a deal for you, but it's not a deal for them. That's a piece of it. The other thing is with residential single family homes, you're competing up against 97% of people who just want to be normal homeowners. Whereas if you start to get into duplexes, triplexes, fourplexes, you are dealing with some investors, but you can typically pay a little bit more than a traditional real estate investor because they need the numbers to be really, really good. That leads to there being some deals on the MLS. Now, the other piece of the MLS is that sometimes people will not only think a deal is too good to be true, but they'll see something that says that the it's been on too long and they get worried. They're like, oh, something must be wrong with this property. And in a lot of cases, that is true. There's a property I went and looked at. It's been on the market like 200 days. It does have some stuff wrong with it. And I can clearly tell why it's still on the market. But the house act that I'm sitting in right now, as I record this, was on the market for 60 days during the COVID kind of spike of demand when like things were going crazy and properties were selling before they even hit the market. And this property was on the, on the market for 60 days and I bought it and I got it under asking. You can find deals. It doesn't necessarily just mean that because it's on there for a long time that it's not a good deal. And so kind of what happens is there's this interesting period of time where you list a property and for sale on the MLS. And if it doesn't sell quickly, then what happens is... And, and it's going to vary what quickly means. Sometimes it could be a couple of days. Sometimes it could be a couple of weeks. Depends on the real estate market in that area or that time frame when you're hearing this. But if it doesn't sell quickly, then people start to think like, oh, exactly like I said, they think, oh, this is, this must, there must be something wrong. If it hasn't sold after a week or two, they're like, yeah, something must be wrong here or whatever. And then that kind of is self-fulfilling. Two, three weeks pass. Now people, more people are like, oh, there must be really something wrong. A month, two month passes and they're like, yeah, something's definitely wrong here. And 90% of people will just avoid that property and they're just, they're done with it. And really all it could be is that the listing agent listed it too high at the beginning. And that's all. And so people weren't interested. And so it just kind of sat and sat and sat. And what you need to do is just go in there and make an offer as to what you're willing to pay. And so that's exactly what happened for me was they just listed it too high. And so it kind of fell into this self-fulfilling prophecy of how the psychology of listings and days on market work. And I was able to pick it up for a little bit under asking and ends up being a great, a great house hack. These are kind of all your on-market strategies. Now, off-market stuff, absolutely possible. Anybody can do it. It's a little bit more complex. You got to get a lot more in the weeds. It's probably... I would say it's a little bit more complex than most people want to go, especially for their first house act, but it is possible. And so I'll just briefly explain how you could do that. There are different sources on the internet. Crexy is one of them. There's, there's a bunch of different ones. And... CoStar is another one. There's a bunch. You go on there, you buy these lists. And what these lists are is it's public record of... And you can define the criteria. You say, okay, I want any multifamily properties that are in this area that are built after this year. And you buy the list. It costs... Depends on how many criteria you have, how many properties, etc. But 50, 100, couple hundred dollars to the, get this list. You get a list of all every single property in the town or city or whatever area that you have picked. And you'll get a list of every single one. You'll get the owner's information, usually email, phone number, whatever is publicly available. And then you just start cold calling them or you start sending them emails or you send them postcards or letters or however you can get in touch with them. And you say, hey, I'm really interested in purchasing your property. Now, 99 times out of 100, they're going to say no, but you will occasionally get a deal. And like I said, this is a little bit more complex for a first-time house hacker. When you start to get a little bit more experience, this is definitely a strategy you'll want to consider. It's something almost every 
a real estate investor for real traditional investment properties uses. I'm actually about to use it for, I'm considering using it for my next house act because I've done it for my regular rental properties. And kind of the model for them is that they'll send out 10,000 and they're just looking to get two or three deals. If they get two or three deals out of this, they make a hundred X what it costs to send out those 10,000 letters. They're happy to do it. I just had a guy on the podcast the other day. He sends out 10,000 letters a month and it costs him like six or $7,000. He gets one deal and it pays for the entire year of sending 10,000 mailers a month. So it can be a valuable strategy, especially for a little bit more sophisticated investors. But um, yeah, it's definitely possible for a house hacker. It's just a little bit more complex. I also wanted to ask you, how much does it actually cost to get into a house hack? Let's just use an example of, say someone's buying a duplex, they're doing 3.5% down, call it, we'll just throw a purchase price out there just to put actual numbers on it. We'll say it's $300,000 property and they put 3.5% down, that's around $10,000 for the down payment. What other costs or other things that should be thrown into consideration, whether it's closing costs or extra reserves or maybe any, anything else I'm not thinking of? Yeah, there's two big things, closing costs and reserves. You kind of hit the nail on the head there. But closing costs is a broad term that can encompass a lot of different things. You have lender fees, whatever, like what the lender is going to charge you to originate the loan. You have prepaids, which are your prepaid in taxes, prepaid insurance. Usually you have to pay for a year insurance up front. You have appraisal, title fees, you have credit report fees. You have like all kinds of fees that you have to pay that all encompass your closing costs. And it really varies drastically where you're based because a big chunk of that is how much you have to pay for taxes, your prepaid taxes. And we live in an area that's really low tax. It's going to be different than if you buy the same exact cost house with the same exact lender fees, just in a higher tax areas. Closing costs for me, I purchased a $350,000 house. I had $10,000 in closing costs and $12,000 for my down payment. So it's $22,000 total to close. Now, the reserves piece is another thing that's interesting. Uh, your lender is going to kind of have their own calculation in terms of like what you have to have for reserves in order to qualify for the mortgage. But this is a different type of reserve. This is what I talk about in the book is that if you can get into a property, let's just use round numbers of $10,000. Let's say you could buy a house hack for $10,000. I don't necessarily think it's the best idea or most prudent idea to buy a house hack if you that house hack if you only have ten thousand and one dollar to your name. Like that's just not really a good idea because Murphy's Law, which says anything that can go wrong will go wrong. And if you're in real estate long enough, you'll know that when you buy that house, as soon as you move in, hot water heater is gonna break or the heating system's gonna go or it's gonna need a roof or even something small, plumbing issues, toilet, whatever, something is gonna go wrong. And you're going to have to pay to fix it. And it's not always going to be like that, but there are going to be situations where this happens and you want to make sure that you have reserves. These reserves can cover if the tenant doesn't pay, maybe you buy a duplex that isn't rented out on one side yet. So you need to cover the mortgage, the full mortgage for a month or two months while you find a tenant. These are all the types of things that reserves are good for. So I would not buy a property if you only have the absolute minimum that you need for a down payment and closing costs. The last thing I want to mention about the closing costs is that my personal approach is I almost always use a seller credit because seller credits reduce the amount of cash that you need to close. So in my case, again, $350,000 duplex, $22,000 bill to close, which was $10,000 for closing costs, $12,000 for down payment. And so I asked the seller for what's called a seller credit, which just means they give me cash back at closing, and you're allowed to apply that to your closing costs. I asked for a $10,000 seller credit that covered all of my closing costs. So instead of having to bring $22,000 to the table, I only had to bring $12,000. And there's a lot of different ways you can ask for that. You can make your offer. And let's just say you offer $350,000 and you can ask for a $10,000 credit, or you can go above their asking price and offer a little bit more so that it nets them the same. For me, I knew... I would prefer to offer a little bit more on the purchase price than have to bring in the cash myself. So he was asking $360,000 for the property, and I was going to offer $340,000 as my offer. But instead, I said, you know what? Let me ask, offer $350,000 and ask for a $10,000 seller credit. On his end, he still gets a net sale price of $340,000. So it's just like if I had offered $340,000 for a purchase and didn't ask for a seller credit. 
except the difference is now I get $10,000 towards my closing costs that I don't have to bring at closing. House hackers are usually getting into house hacking without a lot of capital. It's a really, really, really good strategy for people getting started without a lot. It can help reduce the amount of cash you need to close. Before we close it out, I'd like to hit on the risks a little bit as well. You know, Someone might be listening to this and just be like, let's do it. Let's go buy House Hack. Let's go read Robert's book and do this thing. But as you know, most definitely, there's a lot of thought and a lot of hard work that goes into this. And it's not a quick process. Just to close a house takes about a month. You know, It might take months to save up the money. There's all the time put into you know, finding the property. When it comes to house hacking, could you hit on some of the risks that go into the strategy? Well, there's no risk in reading the book. So go pick up the book and read it because it won't, well, definitely won't hurt you in any way to do that. But in terms of house hacking itself, yeah, I mean, there are definitely risks. Uh, the biggest risk, and you pretty much have this no matter what when you own real estate, whether it's a single family house and you don't house hack or you do house hack or you own rental properties or whatever the case is, but your biggest risk is liability. That's somebody slipping and falling. That's somebody starting a fire. That's somebody... Anything can happen on your property that is some sort of liable issue that yet you as the owner of the property will be liable for. And that can happen. It's just an increased risk with house hacking because you have tenants that live there. And so if they slip and fall and you were negligent, then you know that's going to lead to some big problems. That's a risk for you. But I caveat that by saying you that can happen on a single family house. My dad and some of his friends were out snowmobiling in the winter and they were like four like almost best friends and they got home from a snowmobiling trip. They all hopped out of the truck. One guy slipped and fell, like broke his back and his neck or something in the guy's driveway and they were all like best friends. He sued him. Got like a million couple million dollars out of it and it's just that's just a risk because he owned the house. He wasn't house hacking. It was just a single family house that he owned and the, the driveway was, was icy. And so you have this legal risk, this liability risk, pretty much anytime you own real estate. It's just increased a little bit with house hacking. The other thing is you are accepting sometimes a higher mortgage payment than you otherwise would. So I think the right way to do it is that if you were willing to buy a $300,000 single family house, then you should also buy a $300,000 house hack. If that's the case, you pretty much have no risk because you were already willing... Like From a mortgage perspective, you have no risk because you were willing to pay $3,000 for your single family house. So if the tenant doesn't pay, then you're just paying what you would have with the single family house. So it's not really... You don't really have as much tenant not paying risk there. What will happen though is people will buy a single family house for 300 and then maybe buy a house hack for 400 or 450, just random numbers. And now if the tenant doesn't pay, they're at risk of having to cover the full mortgage payment themselves, which they may or may not be able to afford. That's another risk is tenants not paying. You have tenants uh, who might destroy your unit on the other side. You'll have to kind of deal with that. When you go to sell, depending on what kind of property you bought, there might not be as much of a buyer market for that property. So if you buy a duplex, triplex, fourplex, the risk, there might not be as many people who want to buy it on the back end when you go to sell. Whereas if you have a single family house, that's a good fit for, for most people. So it's, it's a little bit different clientele. And those are, those are, I'd say, are pretty much the biggest risks that you have with house hacking. Robert, well, I really appreciate you joining me today. I really love the book. I encourage anyone who enjoyed this conversation to go out and give it a read. Before we close it out, Robert, I just want to give you a chance to give any final closing thoughts, if you have any, and where the audience can connect with you and go buy the book. Yeah. So you can pick up the book. Pretty much one of the cool things about being with a major, major publisher is that they get the book everywhere. So Walmart, Target, Barnes & Noble, Amazon, it's, it's pretty much anywhere you can get books. They are, are there. You can even request it at your local uh, little library or bookshop so they can get some copies in there if, if, if they want. But uh, yeah, it's pretty much available anywhere. Of course, check out the podcast. If you're listening to this, you probably already do, but definitely be sure to check into the podcast. Uh, you can follow me on social. Uh, my username is the Robert Leonard. And then if you want to learn more about house hacking, you can go to everythinghousehacking.com. A bunch of cool resources there for everything that you need to know about house hacking. I forgot to ask, when does it get officially released and published? The official release date is September 6th. 
Awesome. Well, congrats again, Robert. Thanks again for coming on. Thanks for having me, Clay. I really appreciate it. All right. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Please go ahead and follow us on your favorite podcast app so you can get these episodes delivered automatically. If you've been enjoying the podcast, we would really appreciate it if you left us a rating or review on the podcast app you're on. This will really help us in the search algorithm so others can discover the show as well. And if you haven't already done so, be sure to check out our website, theinvestorspodcast.com. There you'll find all of our episodes, some educational resources, as well as our TIP finance tool that Robert and I use to manage our own stock portfolios. And with that, we'll see you again next time. Thank you for listening to TIP. Make sure to subscribe to We Study Billionaires by the Investors Podcast Network. Every Wednesday, we teach you about Bitcoin, and every Saturday, we study billionaires and the financial markets. To access our show notes, transcripts, or courses, go to theinvestorspodcast.com. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decision, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by the Investors Podcast Network. Written permission must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.